Okay, let's get started into Genesis. Now, as you can see um, on the outline, we've got Genesis A is bookends and setup, which we just did. Now we're in B, which is God in the world. B goes on for a while until we get to C, which is God and Abraham's family. So essentially, I've broken down and I'm following uh, some folks from the Bible Project. I think they do a really good job of breaking this down. Are you familiar with, with them? Yeah, a lot of good material uh, online, thebibleproject.com, I think it is. But uh, those two guys, I forget their names now, but they split it up into two parts by these names, and I really, I really like it. Um, God and the world and God and Abraham's family. So two major portions of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is God in the world, and Genesis 12 through 50 is God and Abraham's family. Now what's interesting about this, this is uh, shared from a commentator named Nahum Sarna. He points out that in Genesis 1 through 11, 948 years of world history is covered. Or 1900, excuse me. 1948 years of world history is covered. In Genesis 12 through 50, they cover 361 years of a single family. So 1 through 11, 1948 years of world history. 12 through 50, 360 years of a single family. Which equals 80% of the material of Genesis is devoted to 17% of time covered. So, this is, just, this is just the facts of time spans covered in the book. So you look at those, and this is where it's on us to say, what could God be getting at in this truth. He wants us to study the, the Torah with such detail that we do these type things. Like, he gives us numbers of people's ages to sort of piece it together and say, okay, what, is, what does this get to? And this is a pretty staggering difference, right? 1948 years of the entire globe only gets 11 chapters and 12 through 50 only 360 years gets 80%. So, what could be God what could God be getting at? Any question any thoughts? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, yeah. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. That reminds me. I'm not going to be getting into much of young age, old, young earth, old earth theories out there. What I've done is I brought, I brought two CDs from when I covered that with the church. And so I've got two lectures or presentations on young earth versus old earth. Um, I personally fall into the young earth category. Um, but I'm going to leave those two CDs here, and if you want to dig more deeply into it, 
I encourage you to do so. Another thing to consider is at the very end of the outline, um, under miscellaneous, um, number Roman numeral six, miscellaneous, you'll see B um, in creation. And this is why, these are, these are the passages that incline me to be young earth. And, and so let me, let me speak a little bit to that. To me, what is important in getting into these questions is what does the Bible say about itself? What did the authors beyond Genesis or Moses himself in writing Genesis, what did anybody writing beyond Genesis 1 think of Genesis 1 in the Bible? That's the question that has to be asked before we get into any geology or anything of that sort because the Bible is our authority. Amen? It is our authority. So we need to understand what it's telling us and one of the best ways to do that is to see how it corresponds with itself. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, this will be more from the United States, and so it's a little bit uh, different culture, but I don't, I'm not comfortable, as comfortable with geology as I am with other things. It's out of my wheelhouse. I haven't studied a lot, so it intimidates, it intimidates me, right? I'm not a geologist, cosmologist, biologist. It's not my forte, and so it makes me, I'm inferior in that realm. If I were talking with somebody that got educated in that realm, I'd feel out of my league, you know? But there are two areas where credentialed, PhD'd people do talk about in the United States that I am comfortable talking about, even though it's not my specialty. Those two areas have to do with, number one, abortion, okay? There are doctors, PhD'd, credentialed, very gifted and brilliant people that went through years of education and, and have experience in the field and everything like that, that will tell me that when my wife becomes pregnant, that's not a human. It's some, some sub, subpar human. And they'll come up with names like embryo and fetus and these sorts of things that dehumanize that baby. But I know that that's a baby. But they're very educated, and they would try to talk me out of that. And so that is an area where I see people that are very credentialed speak about something that I know they're biased. Their bias guides and directs them in an unhealthy way, okay? So that's one area, in the States especially, for, for, in my experience. The second area is what's happening now to the States in, in the realm of the LGBTQ+. Okay? These are incredibly credentialed people. It's being taught in all our schools right now. To speak alternatively, you are seen as a bigot. You're seen as crazy, foolish, narrow-minded, um, and 
binary in understanding the sexes. That's what the educated people in my country would tell me about gender. That gender is a thing of the mind, not of the body. That the two are disconnected. And that the mind determines the body. Right? Now, they can say that all they want. But as a dad who's had six children, five boys and one girl, when that baby came out, I knew it was a boy or a girl. Now, of course, there, in, in a sinful world, there are things like biological mishaps with chromosomes and things like that, but those are like point zero 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 of the thing. In, in an otherwise normal day in the hospital, when that baby is born, the doctor says, it's a, or it's a, yeah. But all these incredibly credentialed people will tell me to think differently, right? So what I'm getting at is that when it comes to something that I'm less comfortable with, like geology and cosmology and things of that nature, I look at these other two realms and I see that someone's presuppositions drive their academics, drive their theology, drive their understanding of anthropology. Presuppositions drive that. Now, you'd ask, do the presuppositions drive us? And I would say, a hundred percent. And we're going to get into that with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But our presupposition that the Bible says is the beginning of knowledge is what? Fear of the Lord. So it's a presupposition. I presuppose God's existence and he is who he revealed himself to be in his word. That is my presupposition. That is my guiding motive that the Holy Spirit awakened my eyes and opened my mind to see Christ for who he truly is as revealed in his word. So, the question then comes to me is, what does the Bible first say about itself as far as creation goes? And as you look up all these passages, my indication is that the biblical authors look back on Genesis 1 and they see it as an instantaneous creation by the word of the Lord, out of nothing into something. And then he began to systematically shape it in seven days and move on from there. Uh, These passages lead me to that conclusion. Another factor that I'd throw in there is this. We cannot possibly fathom the cataclysmic event of the flood. We can't fathom it. So, the scientists of our day have a presupposition of a steady state universe. That the way things happen today is the way things always happened. Does that make sense? So, the way that sediment layers form today is the way they've been happening for all time. But then, incredibly cataclysmic events happen, not even close to the nature of the flood, 
like Mount St. Helens eruption, and they find things happen in very quick ways that are kind of like, whoa, we didn't think it happened that fast. But little events demonstrate that it can happen that fast. And so that is my, in a, in a nutshell, view on what leads me to believe in a young earth perspective. And the, if, if you want to dig further, um, I do have a book I recommend. I should have brought that book. It's called um, New, The New Creationism by Paul Garner. And it's a, it's a fabulous bus, book that um, traces out some of the new thoughts in how a young earth can even gel with some of the, the recent scientific uh, discoveries. And so, um, interesting. Any, any questions on that before I, before I go further? And uh, I'll leave those two CDs if you want to. I, I unpack these passages in much greater detail. Okay? All right. Now, yeah, so that was to, the, to Samuel's uh, question um, about when this, when this history starts. Okay? So what conclusion might these... Yeah, Faisal. Okay, very good, very good. And what does the covenant bespeak about God? What, what characteristic or attribute of God? Redemption? What, what, what's behind redemption? Merciful, compassionate, love, sovereign. It's getting, to, it's getting to his innermost heart, and it's, it's opened up to us. The way that I summarize it is that God is God of both cosmos and communion. He is God of both cosmos and communion. Genesis 1 through 11 shows us that he is a cosmic God, specifically Genesis 1, I would argue. That, you know, it's in these passages where we understand that God can make mountains skip like calves. You know, it's, we've got, I tell a story sometime, we've got a guy in our church, he stands about this tall. And he, I can't even imagine how much he weighs. He is one of the biggest human beings I've ever seen. And he was telling me this story about growing up on the farm. And he was picking up bags of grain. And he, I think he said they were like 150 pounds a piece. Okay? And he said we had to move them all from this spot to this spot. And he said I was picking up one in each arm. And he's, and he's laughing. He said because my mom saw me do it and she called me lazy. Because I was trying to move too fast. But, of course, it's funny because he's carrying 300 pounds of grain or whatever, you know. But as he's telling me this story, he says to me, 
and I'm standing in the kitchen with him, he says, well, you're probably pretty close to that. I could pro-. And before I could even move or think, he wrapped his arm around me and picked me up over his shoulder. And I felt like one of my little kids. There was nothing I could do to get out of his grip. And he goes, yeah, you're not bad. And he's just holding me like that. I just felt so small, so small in view of his strength, you know, and his might. And that is a human, right? Human. And so Genesis 1 demonstrates what God is like with cosmos. you got to understand that when uh, Moses wrote this, these entities um, were things people worshipped. You'll see that when we get into the Exodus with the plagues. These are elements that people bow down to and worship. You see that in Romans 1, that they worship the creeping things of earth. They worship these things. And so God, in handling them so easily, is demonstrating that he is way far and above these things of earth. So the, the, the theological word for that is it's a polemic, polemic, which is um, an argument against everything else. And that's what we find a bit in Genesis 1. But in this disproportion, we find communion trumps gets more attention. Is it time for coffee? What's that? What's that mean? Oh, okay. Oh, I got you. Are those full of coffee? Oh, she'll bring it. Okay, we'll stop when she comes. Yeah. All right, so does that, does that make sense? This is, this is an interpretation of what this could mean as an emphasis of God, which shows his heart for humanity. And we'll see that as the creation narrative develops. Let's take a break and have some coffee. Is that how we do it? How do we do it? Have it while we talk? Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, so let's keep going then. All right, creative intent, creative intent. Um, What I'm going to get here is as we go through Genesis 1 through 2 and 2 through 4, we're going to find that the New Testament isn't saying anything different than the Old Testament. The New Testament isn't saying anything different than the Old Testament. In fact, I would even go as far as to say, and this is something our assistant at church said when we were working through Genesis, He's like, it's like after Genesis, nothing's new. And I was like, yeah. It just gets more profound. But nothing's new. And I could even trace that back almost to Genesis 1 through 4. It's that profound. So let's, let's see it as we go. Okay? All right. What is the grand intent that comes through in Genesis 1 through 2, 1 through 4? Um, A.B., would you read that one for us? They shall not burn or destroy all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters of the sea. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the water covers the sea. So think of the height of the knowledge of God encompassing the earth. This, this is the direction that Genesis is going to. Brian, would you read that for us? Okay, he's picking up on that. All right. Um, Mohammed, would you read that? Yes. Colossians 1. This I'm going to pass. Oh, no, sorry, the third one. For in him. Right here. All right. The goal of Genesis 1 to 2, the aim of creation, is that the knowledge of God would be spread across the entirety of the planet. That there would be no atom, atom, scientific atom, unreached with the knowledge of God. This is the concept. Okay? So. It's important to keep these things in mind as we start Genesis, because this is the aim. This is the goal. That's where, that's where God wants creation to be. And you get into the prophets, and, and you get to where he says, uh, you know, no one will need to teach his neighbor, right? Because all will know the Lord in an intimate way. This is, this is the idea. that No one will search for the Ark of the Covenant. No one will care because God Himself will be overwhelmingly known. Right? So this is, this is the goal. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. And I would argue that the rest of the Bible is pursuing. Okay? So those are important passages. And, and that creates the basis by which to judge all else. Now, where do, we, where do we get into that in the text? Aren't you, fine, aren't you happy that we're finally into the text? Okay. All right. So, in the... All right, let's try that again. In the beginning. Interesting thought about this word. It's a Hebrew word that implies a subsequent end. So, imagine this, that the Bible opens up Essentially telling you, I'm telling a story that already has a predetermined end. It's mind-blowing, right? And this is where we, we get into, behind the clouds, into the sovereignty of God in a way that's beyond us. But God has told a story that he has an end to. Okay? Now... What is, if this is one story that has a beginning and an end, what is the center of the story? What is the story about? It's a story. What's it about? And that is answered in the very next phrase. But before we get to that, another passage that demonstrates this, Isaiah 40. 9 to 10. 
Remember the 40 th- uh, former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Oliver, would you read the part in the yellow? This is a characteristic of God. It's who He is. He can tell you the end at the beginning. And that is implied in Genesis 1.1 in the choice of this Hebrew word which implies, it suggests that there's already an end. You see it in Hebrews 1.2. Hebrews says, but in these last days. <laughs> which means... There is a time frame of God that at the coming of Christ and the ascension of Christ, they have cro- like the humanity has crossed in this threshold into the last days. That we now are in what's called in the chronology of the Bible, the last days. Which implies that that is predetermined, correct? There's a segment called the last days. Who determined that? God did. So it's like you read a book and it's got 15 chapters and you get into the 10th chapter and you're kind of like, I'm in the third section. I'm in the end part. That's what we're called that we're in since Christ has come and ascended. We are in the last days. Which tells you that there is a chronology of God. It's demonstrated in Isaiah 46. It's demonstrated in Hebrews 1-2. These are just two instances of it. But it all is based on all the way back in Genesis, okay? All right. Who is the subject? God. In the beginning, God. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. No, I'm okay. I'm good, good. Okay. So, catch this. Now we're getting into the narrative clues, right? The narrator, remember how he hints and nudges? Okay? Look at the ways he does it. And you tell me, oh, excuse me, you tell me if I'm wrong. Okay? That's what, that's what we're doing. We're all navigating this text together, and we want to see what he's telling us. Now, by the way, you're going to have to turn your page over if you're taking notes at some point, because there's a lot of info here I'm warning you in advance, so... So you know. He's the main subject of the first sentence. He's the main character of the first narrative. His name is mentioned 35 times. Let me tell you, does anybody know where Moses got his training? What's that? Yeah, his training, sorry. That's definitely part of his makeup, yeah. With Pharaoh. From Egypt. From Egypt. Okay, guys, you got to understand, Egypt was essentially, like in the U.S., the school that is like the school is called Harvard. That's the name of the school. It's like, it started Christian, unfortunately, it's very secular now, but... It's like the school. Egypt was the school of Moses' day. He grew up in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. 
So Moses was exceptionally educated in a, in a secular way. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit <laughs> complements that in, in, in an overwhelming way, of course. But I say this to say that we need to read this book uh, aware of what's going on behind the scenes, all right? Okay. So he's the, God is the main subject of the first sentence. He's the main character of the first narrative. When you go beyond the first narrative in Genesis, you run into characters like Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob. What do they, excuse me, all have in common? Mm-hmm. They all experience name changes by God. Okay? Now, their name changes were to demonstrate or push them toward a character development. Right? Okay. You know, Abraham goes from Abram, which was probably father, to father of multitudes. So his first name was even funny because he wasn't a father in a tragic way, right? I mean, it's sad and tragic at the same time. I mean, imagine introducing yourself and the person saying, well, how many kids do you have? Imagine the knife in the heart, you know, that's painful. And then for God to change his name before he gets a son to father of multitudes, he's like, God, I'm already, it's already bad enough. All right, but he calls him father of multitudes because that's the trajectory that he's going to develop Abraham into, right? Uh, Sari, Sarah comes from Sari to Sarah. Both are probably plays on princess, you know, which is really awesome because it has to do with royalty, and she's connected with royalty. Um, but he's, he's doubling down on that with, with Sarah. And then Jacob goes from uh, um, heel grabber Jacob to Israel, okay? Which is a combination of two Hebrew words, Isra, which means to fight, and El, which means God. And so it's a very fascinating passage when he gets that name. Because essentially, I, my understanding of that passage is that God is saying to him, Jacob, you have fought me your whole life to get blessing. I'm changing your name to Israel because you fought me your whole life. But my trajectory for you is for you to let me fight for you. You've been fighting me. Now let me fight for you. That's, you've, been, you've been conniving your whole life to get blessing. Let me fight it. Let me fight that battle for you. That's what I think is going on there. But in each of these cases, there is a name change that marks character development. That they were incomplete or, you know, broken and God's making them, forming them, doing something better through them, right? God gets several names throughout Genesis, I count at least seven names that he gets throughout Genesis. They experience one name change, except God's names are not name changes. They are simply further exploration into the vastness of his being, right? 
So there's nothing, there's nothing developed about God. There's just more explored. There's just more identified. And, and this gets to the thought, and this is totally speculative. You know, this, don't take this to the bank. But I, I, I wonder, you know, God says, and we'll get into this, to make, he made man in his own image. And then he tells him to multiply. Look at the Gospels written by four guys, right? With all different personalities. And each one shows Jesus in a unique way according to his personality, right? And they're all true. I wonder if we are his images is a statement that you could fill the whole earth with an incredible variety of human beings. And each person will give you, if, if they're in my image, another view, like a, another angle on who I am, another part of who I am. Because he's so vast. You, you can, what does John say about Jesus? If I kept writing about him, what does he say? The whole earth. Isn't it beautiful? I think it's all connected. That the whole earth would be filled with the books. That's a statement, I believe, to say that the knowledge of God is so vast, it could cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. Amen? Okay, so, point is, is that Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob, they get name changes as signs of development. God gets additional names just because his character is so exceptionally vast. All right, his character is developed beyond any other in the book. His character is developed beyond any other in the book. Um, it, you know, we learn about his all power, his omnipotence in Genesis 1, of course. He's powerful over all things. Uh, we see that he's all-knowing in the flood where he knows the thoughts and intentions of hearts. He knows them. He's all-knowing. Um, we see with Hagar, um, she names him. I believe she, she may be the first one to give God a name, uh, which is real interesting. And she articulates it. He's the God of seeing. Because he, he sees her in her misery, right? And so, but these are, all, these are all developments on the character of God. What he's, what he's like and his attributes. And they, they show up. And of course, we've talked about mercy, which I think stands out the most. Another argument for why all creation that God is the main subject of the book, the main subject of the Bible, the main subject of creation. It's a very interesting word in Genesis 1.14. Um, let's see. Uh, Issachar, would you read that one for us? Here's what's fascinating. You read the word season, and you think, you know, 
spring, summer, fall, winter, that sort of thing. This word is translated out of its 160 usages in the Old Testament, 135 of those is used to describe the festivals, meeting times, where they come to worship God. Think about that for a second. So what is God, if, a, if, if this word translated the great majority of the time the rest of the Bible, this is used for Israel's Hebrew festivals, okay? If this word is translated meeting or festival, feast, worship, worship celebration, 135 out of 160 usages, and it's supposed to be translated and for meeting in Genesis 1.14, what is God saying that the calendar is about primarily? Exactly. Worship. That the calendar, the most important date on the calendar is worship. This is, this is in, in the very beginning, God telling people what it's all about, both in subject and in time allotments, in calendars. Okay, further. Where do we see this in Christ? In Christ. A.B., would you read that for us? In Christ, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see? The same element of given new names to explore the vastness of his being is done on Christ. Now, in the cross-reference there, in Matthew 16, anybody remember what's happening? Yes, and, and what does Jesus do to Peter? Or to Simon, I should say, right? So, what you see Jesus doing is the same thing his father was doing. You see that? He's changing people's names. That's what God did. Um, in Hebrews 1.3, you have, you know, Genesis exploring the vastness of his character by names. But what do we find with Jesus? He is the exact imprint of his father so it's as though it's as though in hebrews 1 3 the author's saying look you can you can play around with all the names you want and that's great it's god's worthy of it but when you look at the son you've seen the father it's exactly what jesus is saying to his disciples to look at me is to look at the father do you see? So Genesis begins this God exploration. Jesus delivers the God definition. He, it, to look at him is to look at the Father. So 
This is, this is what we see beginning in Genesis and fulfilled in Christ. All right. Any, any thoughts on that before we move on? Do you catch that the in the beginning God prepares you for him being the main subject? It's a narrative clue that this is what it's all about. This is who it's all about. Okay. All right. The heavens and the earth. In in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism. And what a mirrorism is, a literary device that takes two opposite extremes to summarize the whole. It expresses totality. Let me, let me give you um, an example in the scripture. Uh, this is in Sodom. To tell you how bad Sodom was, okay? You remember when the, the men of the city come and start trying to get, get the angels that visited? Okay, this is how it describes it. It describes it with a mirrorism. Young and old. All the people to the last man surrounded the house. So do you see what it's doing? It's telling you something. It's saying, this town was evil. Deeply evil. Entirely evil. That, you know, if you, if you don't pay attention to this, you look back at Sodom in Genesis 18, and you think the men of the city were evil. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's just the men. The boys. This city was corrupt. From the top to the bottom. This is why in Jeremiah 6.13, he'll summarize the people of Israel, and he'll say, from the least to the greatest. As if to say, the entirety. There's nothing left out. So it's a mirrorism. Those are negative mirrorisms to express something awful and tragic. This mirrorism is to express something awesome about God right from the get-go. That from the heavens to the earth, there's nothing that doesn't have his fingerprint on it. He, He created it all. Therefore, if you have fears, it's probably connected to something on earth. And you know that God did it all on earth. His fingerprints are on everything. So he's in control, right? That's an, an application. So in the Old Testament, now I, I wanted to ask Josh this, so this wasn't a terrible example, but do you guys have zip codes here or no? Is that not a thing? Not a thing? Okay. So in, but, but you have, you have uh, postal codes? Okay, so you have postal codes, and they're different for a lot of different places. Okay, that's what we call zip codes, sorry. So you have postal codes, great. That is how the ancient people thought about gods. They thought gods had postal codes. Yeah, true story. And, and, and you know that uh, because you, you see it in 2 Kings 17, 25 to 26, where... 
these kings take over a land and bad things are happening and they're saying, we didn't properly understand the gods of the land, right? So the way they looked at it is when you cross that postal code into another territory, you need to get really familiar with the God of that territory so that you can please that God and he'll bless you and take care of you, right? So that's how, that's how they viewed things. But what does this mirrorism that starts it out do to that? Obliterates it, right? There's, there's, no, there's no postal code that God is not God over, right? And you see this even in Jacob, right? When Jacob is fleeing from Esau for his life, and he spends the night in Luz, I think it's called Luz, Lutz, um, he lays down, he has a dream, he wakes up, and he changes the name of the place. Do you remember what he changes it to? Bethel. Bet, house, El, God. This is the house of God, right? But that's a misunderstanding, right? Jacob was thinking in an ancient mindset, and God accommodates it for the time because he's slowly teaching Jacob. But he, Jacob thinks that this, this spot is uniquely special. Are you ready for this? Jesus sees Nathaniel and he says, Ah, Nathaniel, a Jacobite in whom there's no, what's that? Deceit, which is a, a hint at who Jacob was, right? You're from Jacob, but you're not like Jacob. Because when you meet Nathaniel, he just was a guy that told you like it was. You didn't have to wonder what Nathaniel thought. He was just a very honest guy, right? And Nathaniel's shocked when Jesus says that. And he's like, wow, you know me. And Jesus says, you think that is special? Uh, he says, yeah, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Okay? And Nathaniel says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And he says, if you stick with me, you'll see more than that. Upon me, you'll see angels ascending and descending. Who saw that? Jacob. At what he called, and what's Jesus saying to Nathaniel? I'm the ladder. I'm the ziggurat. I am, I am the presence of the Father. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, there's speculation on whether what Jacob saw was a ladder or what was really common in those days was like a ziggurat, like a, like in a, like a, a spiral sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just speculative exactly what he saw, you know. It's nothing to, nothing to take to the bank but but are you seeing that that Jacob is thinking with his ancient mindset when God is over it all and Jesus is the way to God okay all right any any thoughts on that before we go any further okay all right good enough let's go Without form and void, 
Now, when God says that, before you look at the screens, hear this word. When God says creation was without form and void, he's telling you two things about creation. It has two problems, or two incompletions. It doesn't have form. It's a watery mass, right? Darkness is over the surface of the deep. Water covers the earth. It's this watery globe mass. It doesn't have form yet, and it doesn't, it's void. It doesn't have fullness. Two problems with the earth. So what he's doing there is he's creating an outline. He's telling you, this is what God's about to work on. Doesn't have shape, doesn't have form, and it's empty. Okay? So then he sets about rectifying that, fixing it. Now, when you look at the screen, you see that days one through three take care of the form problem. Day one, he separates light from dark. Day two, he separates water from air. Day three, he separates water from land. Now the earth has form. Then, days four through six take care of the second problem, which was it was void. It was empty. And it takes care of that in a fullness way, but he even goes above and beyond, and he does it in a way that complements the previous three days. So, day one separated light from dark. Day four fills up the light and dark with sun, moon, and luminaries. Day two separated water from air. Day five fills up day two's water and air with birds and fish. Day three separated water from land. Day six complements day three in filling it up with land animals and humans. So, this is, these are the features that when you read, you need to be aware of, to, to, to catch. To say, oh, he's telling me something in a very subtle way. But when you think about it, you're like, oh, it's not so subtle. He said it had two problems. Then he spent three days fixing the one problem and three days fixing the other. And they happen to perfectly correspond. It's very interesting. And it's telling us something about God. What could this be telling us about God? Yeah, very good. That that's a beautiful thing, you know? Um, that we do that because we're made. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's his design in, within us that people don't even maybe give him credit. Um, but it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I, we were talking to Alex about his metalworking, and I, I love working with wood, and it's, it's such a fun thing to spend time thinking about the, the steps, you know, and it's, it's wonderful. So yeah, what else? A provider, yeah. And, and why is that particularly important for us? 
Very good. And are we complete? Are we independent people or dependent people? Dependent. So God is one that takes, let me ask you this, of the earth's three forms that it takes in Genesis 1, with which do you most identify? Well, here, let me give you the three forms. <laughs> three forms. Are you a formless, watery mass? Are you perfectly put together in a formed way? And is your life totally overflowing, a, you know, brimming with fullness? A lot of times I feel like a watery mass. A chaotic mess. Right? And this tells me that God can work with that. God can work with my mess. Okay? Now, you might be thinking, you might be thinking, cool thought, probably not in the text, right? Jeremiah 4.23. Uh, Mikey, would you read that for us? This is after, this is in the midst of Israel, judgment falling on Israel and what God's going to do to Israel for their sin, what he's going to do to their people, land, all the above. Go ahead, Mikey. So Jeremiah, by the Spirit of God, is looking at the people of Israel and he's saying, your existence is without form and void. Your destination is without form and void in what's about to happen to you. You are going to be thrown back materially, physically, spiritually, emotionally into a primeval state, as it were, before God touched the earth, that will be the summation of how you feel. You'll be destitute. With that in mind, with this image in mind, consider, and James, would you read us Luke 3, 2-6, <clears throat> So just consider this. Just consider this. Jeremiah is saying, it's the, guys, it's the exact Hebrew phrase, formless and void. 
tohu vabohu, I think it is. The exact Hebrew phrase Jeremiah uses from Genesis to describe Israel's condition. Then God has got a guy, and Jeremiah summarizes it, since the world's not covered in water, the, the, the parallel to formless and void in Jeremiah's words is that it's a barren what? W, I, L, D, wilderness. All right. It's a wilderness, okay? Because the earth's not covered in water, the best he can come up with, it's a barren wilderness, okay? That's what the earth is like as a result of its sin. And just consider this. Then he has a guy named John the Baptist, and where does John the Baptist choose to live? In the wilderness. And in the wilderness, where he chooses to dwell, which is a perfect illustration of what Jeremiah was saying, He's actually physically, literally living there. And he has this message that he's screaming out. And the message that he's screaming out in a way that everybody wants to come hear him is the wilderness is going to be overcome by God. And who's he preparing the way for? Jesus. So this is, Jesus is our forming and fullness. He is what comes into a spiritual mess that can best be summarized as formless and void, a wasteland. And he can come into that life. He can come into that family. He can come into that marriage. He can come into that country, that city, that world, and bring form and fullness. That's that's who Jesus is. He is fulfilling the work of the Father. That's what he does. And so there is, there is this paradigm that we see in Christ, and then we see in these, in these words themselves. Um, and we'll take a break once we get through void here. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Mikey. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, good question. So here's, here's the best way I would, I would answer it. John 15, Jesus is talking about the vine, right? Which is very significant because I think it's Isaiah 5 that refers to Israel as God's personal vine. Okay? So he's a vine. God's the vine dresser. And what does the Father take off branches that bear no fruit, right? So that's the essence of biblical void, I would say, is that, of course, there is a branch, just like there was a watery mass. There was something, but it wasn't fruitful. So that, yeah, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's just that it, it is hard for us to understand, like an emptiness, a vast emptiness. But... I think in biblical terms, void bespeaks more of a lack of fruitfulness is the place that's pushing. Yeah, that would be my best answer to it. Um, any other questions before we move on? 
good, good stuff. Okay, so with the form, we see this in the New Testament, do we not? 1 Corinthians 14.33, which I would say in the New Testament letters is the most formless church. If you can think of something going wrong, it probably was going wrong in the church of Corinth. It's like, you know, the church that nobody wants to pastor. It's that church. You, if you can imagine it, it's probably happening there, okay? And in that church, Paul writes to it and it says, and he says, for God is not a God of confusion. It could be translated disorder, but of peace. And the way that peace begins, before there's ever fullness, there has to be what? Order. Form. For the, fullness always follows form. Fullness always follows form. Okay? That's an important concept. God lays it down. We see this when we understand sin. Brian, would you read that for us? Sin is a life with no form, order. It's just, I feel it, I do it, right? It's just complete lawlessness. That's, that's what sin is. A great example of this is what we find in uh, Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark 5. Yapsaga. Would you read that for us? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, who put the chains on him? Right? Somebody had to do that. It's like not the job that anybody's volunteering for, right? If it were Josh asking to go put chains on this guy, the hands wouldn't have gone up today, right? Jesus approaches this guy, and the guy sees him from a distance, from afar, doesn't walk to him, he runs to him and bows down before him. And then when Jesus leaves the town, do you know what the text says about this guy? The part I have in here didn't tell you. He was also naked, by the way. And another reason why you wouldn't want to be chained in him, right? But at the end of the uh, pericope, it says he was clothed and in his right mind. Right? Jesus brings form where there is the typification of formlessness, right? And, it, and the point is, is if he can do that with legion, that, that's his name because he he's filled with many demons, complete formlessness. If he can do that with him, the point is, he can do it with pornography addiction. He can do it with alcoholism. He can do it with manipulativeness and mistreating people and using people. He can 
bring order where there is total disorder. Never discount that in the people that you evangelize. Never discount it. People likely wrote Legion off, right? And Jesus reformed. He brought form. Void. 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 You notice in Mark 11, very interesting, Jesus is walking to, very significant, he's walking to the temple. He approaches a fig tree, and the way John commun- or, uh, Mark communicates this situation is he sees the fig tree from a distance, and he's hungry, so he expects there to be, because it was in season. He gets to the fig tree, it's bearing no fruit. So what does he do? He curses it. They go to the temple. This is called a sandwich. Familiar with that term, sandwich, right? This is the top piece of bread, okay? He goes to the temple, and what does he find when he gets to the temple? They were selling. Where were they selling it? The courts. Who was the court for? Us. It was for us, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, okay? There's no room for the Gentiles. What does he do? He destroys the temple, right? He flips over tables, drives things out, turns over money, all that sort of stuff, right? He leaves the temple. They pass the fig tree. And it was withered down to the roots. John sandwiches those. That's the bottom part, okay? Or however you want to do it. The first thing's the bottom or whatever. In the middle is the temple. What is Mark doing in that gospel? What's he telling you? What's What's the strategic significance to him telling you that? What's that? Okay. Mirrors the fig tree. Him flipping over tables is a sign of cursing, which it will lead to, I'm taking the keys from the kingdom and I'm giving them to someone who what? Produces fruit. Who doesn't obscure the way to God for the world? They obscured the outer court, which is for us dogs. That's what we're called. But even the children eat the crumbs that fall from the, or even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table, right? The Syrophoenician woman says. So here's the point. God is a God that loves fruitfulness and disdains barrenness. That's who God is. He loves the explosion of life. What does Proverbs say? Stalls with no oxen are what? Clean. But there's much abundance 
by the strength of an ox. Right? So, so what does God like more? Messy stalls with lots of fruit? Or empty stalls that's perfectly clean? He likes messy stalls with lots of fruit, right? Because God is a God that loves abundance. He loves life. He loves for you with the gifts that he's given you and me to use them to our utmost by his strength. And he will produce fruit. To the dead branches, what does he do? Breaks them off, throws them in the fire. Guys, hell is filled with dead branches. People that benefited no one That's what hell is filled with. People that didn't care about anything other than themselves. Heaven is filled with folks that God has pruned so they produce more fruit. Pruning hurts, but it produces more fruit because God is a vine dresser that loves abundance. Okay? That's that's the concept, and we see it in Jesus. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And I would would explore and push push a little further here and say that there could be be a a thought here, and this is, of all the things I tell you, this is in the area where I put in the more speculative realm. So I'm telling you that at the outset. But what is, out of these two concepts, what does the legalist focus most on? The legalist, the law keeper. Form or fullness? Exclusively, right? Hey, man, my life's clean. I do everything right, right? The antinomian is the against law or no law, right? The antinomian tends to live in the, I'm going to chase, I'm going to be a hedonist that chases fullness as much as I can get it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That is all the fullness side with no form, right? And Jesus brings perfect order and fullness like either of these can't. Legalist or the antinomian. Okay, any, any questions, comments? Okay, John 1, 1, 4 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. This is logos, the, the Word of... Um, in the beginning was the Word, and then it goes on. In Him was life, the light of men, full of grace and truth. And so you see in Christ the perfect amalgamation of blessing and truth. And it's, it's perfect in the person of Christ, and we saw that in Legion specifically. Okay.